There, that's better. It's in the light, isn't it? Good, because this is our focus this morning. A uh, very warm welcome to everyone from me as well this morning. I, as ever, can see faces of people I don't recognise. It's great to have you with us uh, as visitors and trust that you uh, will become friends. Um, we are in the second week of a series going by the title Rooted. And last week we looked at being rooted in Christ. This week we're looking in, at being rooted at the cross. So, hence the cross, and we're going to be breaking bread together, and in that way, remembering the cross of Christ before we're done this morning. I'm not going to turn to one particular passage of scripture this morning, but actually, you know, the cross is so central to the New Testament, uh, there's a Matt Redmond song, isn't there, that says, every road leads back to the cross, and uh, actually every book of the New Testament speaks of the cross and leads us to think of what Jesus did there. So I'm going to be reading from all kinds of places across the New Testament and a little bit of the Old this morning. And uh, if you, I'll try to give references as I I go in case you want to note it down. If you've got your Bible with you, you'll be flicking through quite quickly to get to different things. If anybody wants my notes at the end, um, then if you get in touch with the church office, I'll make sure that they've got hold of them. Let's pray together. Father God, I ask that you would send the Holy Spirit to us this morning to reveal to us afresh the wonder of what was done at the cross. An instrument of pain and torture taken and given meaning and significance for us because of what Jesus did there 2,000 years ago. Lord, open our eyes this morning afresh. And for any who've just never quite got hold of what the cross is about, Lord, please would you take these words that I can offer and may you speak to our hearts and minds, souls and spirits, and do us good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in 1 Corinthians 1 and from verse 22, it says that uh, Jews demand powerful signs, miraculous signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. This Christ crucified is the power of God and the foolishness of God. That which seems foolish, not wise, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The truth is that in those days, and even today, the cross of Christ is both powerful and wise, but that's not how it looks at first sight. At first sight, a person being executed in a painful way looks like several kinds of failure. It looks like a political failure for a man who claimed to come and bring the kingdom of God, which would transform everything in the life of Israel and the nations, and was killed by the political authorities, bringing his life to an end. It seems like a political failure. What may be less obvious to us is that for the people of Israel, it was also clearly 
a moral failure. Because in the law of God brought through Moses, it says in Deuteronomy 21 and verse 23, that anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. The law of Moses also made it clear, as Graham uh, reminded us this morning in choosing life and choosing death, that if you lived right and pleased God, he would bless you. If you lived wrongly, if you were immoral, then you would be cursed. And so to be hung on a tree was understood to be a curse from God and therefore a clear sign that your life was a moral failure. That's what it meant. And that's what Saul would have been thinking as he rode down the road to Damascus. He was a zealous Jew and was going there to track down and to punish these Christians who were evidently so thoroughly confused and stupid to think that someone who had been crucified was a good man and even worthy of worship. It seemed to Saul that Jesus had been punished And for all the world, it seemed that he was a cursed man and a sinner. But then Saul had the shock of his life. Because Jesus appeared to him. And not appearing in any way sinful or cursed. But in a blaze of glory. Full of light and power, and speaking words that cut to his soul, and, and he struck him blind as well. Just to clarify quite a few things, I think, in Saul's mind. He was utterly, utterly shocked. This mismatch between dying on a cross and a risen Lord full of power who proclaimed the Christians his people. You know, Paul, as he became known, Saul becoming Paul, uh, spent a lot of time trying to figure that out. A lot of time. He had a lot of learning and uh, was steeped in Jewish understanding and had this incredible encounter with Christ. And he spent years working at, how does that work? It doesn't make sense. We might call it a paradox or in some way try to simplify it, but much of the New Testament is the outworking of it. Ah, it makes sense a bit like this, and it makes sense a bit like that, and there is no one single place in the New Testament where someone has written down the complete summary of all that it's about. What the New Testament gives us is a number of words and a number of pictures that all try to get at making sense of what seemingly makes no sense at all. And so we're going to look at a few of those words this morning. And I was praying ahead of this morning, just as I did at the, just before getting going with this message, just that God would open our eyes afresh. Because some of these words, if you've been a Christian a while, some of these words are quite familiar. And uh, we don't want that familiarity to breed contempt. I'm just praying that God would open all of our eyes afresh 
to the reality of how what seems to be nonsense is actually a source, (laughs) the source of life for eternity for us all. So let's start here with Christ crucified. Here's a sacrifice. Let's have a few, click again. There we go. A sacrifice for our sin. Ephesians 5 and verse 2 says that God, sorry, that Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, of course, the practice of sacrificing animals is not common in the 21st century, um, at least not for any purpose other than eating them ourselves. Uh, And it requires a little bit of our getting our heads around what did this mean for them to say that Christ was a sacrifice. Well, in Judaism, at that time when they still had a temple, Old Testament sacrifices for sin did several things. An animal, an unblemished and perfect animal, was brought to the temple and given to the priest. That was a sign of giving the animal to God. And the animal, or at least much of it, was taken and roasted on the altar, like a big barbecue, really. And the aroma, the fragrance of the cooking meat was... Uh, found to be pleasing in a society where not that much meat was eaten. It was a sign of something really, some kind of celebration and something really good going on that you could smell roasting meat. And actually in Leviticus 22, verse 25, it says that the food, that the, the, the offering that is given on the altar is food for God. It's a strange kind of concept, isn't it? But the idea was that what can, what can we do to give something to God? We can take that which is valuable in our culture, in our society, that which we use to celebrate, that which gives forth a pleasing aroma and will roast the animal in the presence of God and it will be an offering to God that will please him and appease him as well. It will show to him that we honour him and we want relationship with him. As well as that, the altar on which this offering was given was holy. It was set apart for the purpose. And so when the animal had been put on the altar, the blood of that animal that had been reserved was also, by association, holy. That's why the Bible talks about being sprinkled with blood, which again is really a long way off anything we would do today. But in this context, if you took some of that blood of the animal, the animal having been made holy, set apart on the altar, you take this holy blood and sprinkle people, and it was a sign of holiness, not just being stuck on the altar but holiness coming out from the altar and being put onto God's people. They'd go around the temple, sprinkling the temple with blood at different parts of the year and sprinkle people. And it was about this thing that was so precious that had been set apart, being taken and put upon the people that the people would know that they too were precious, 
valued by God and themselves set apart. People, through this process, had their sin taken away. So that God, who had every reason to be angry at their sin, at their moral failure, would no longer be angry with them. And this was a way of bringing people into fresh relationship with God. There's a word in English, it's actually a medieval English word that uh, survives now only in the Bible, uh, which is the word atonement. In uh, Old English, it really did mean there was the word that it was that you were said to be at one with someone when you'd put your grievances to one side or dealt with them and come into fresh relationship and you were at one. They took that noun and made it into a verb, which just goes to show that the English language has always been doing that since the medieval period. And they said that you you could you could at one, you could do it to people, you could atone. You could come together. Atonement is about taking parties that have been separated and reconciling them. And at several places in the New Testament, that phrase is used in English. Romans 3, verse 25, 1 John 2, verse 2, and again in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. It speaks of Christ's death being an atoning sacrifice. A sacrifice that takes people who were far off and brings them to be at one with God. John the Baptist, on seeing Jesus, said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In Ephesians 2 and verse 13, it says, Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. And so there's this word, reconciliation. This is another New Testament word, a sacrifice for our sin that achieves reconciliation. You know, sacrifices for sin in the Jewish temple were typically followed by fellowship offerings. And the difference there was that more food was put on the altar and given to God, but now some of it was kept by the people and they would sit down together and eat the meal of this food with the understanding that something had been done symbolically about God joining in this meal with them or them joining in the meal with God. There is little more intimate in our lives than sitting down and eating with people. There's a kind of friendship that comes from... Actually, we were in Paris just before Christmas, after Christmas, goodness me, uh, with John and Nom, um, who successfully are doing a great job of planting a church there. And they've discovered that in France, that, you know, there's this this sort of process of things that happen food-wise. It starts with a goutte at four or five, five five-ish in the afternoon, which is a snack really for children and not for adults. And then an apéro, an aperitif at about seven or so, um, which is to help uh, the adults kind of keep going and have something a little bit nice before sitting down to eat properly at about eight or or nine o'clock where you have a proper dinner. And what they discovered is that it's okay to invite people that you're trying to get to know 
for the apéro, um, but to invite people to dinner is really, really pushing it socially, and you just don't really do that. If you want to develop a relationship with someone, what you can do, if the relationship's going really well, is invite them for the aperitif, and then point out that there's dinner cooking, and they might stay, if, things are, you know, if they really like you. It's interesting to us to see that, because we don't have any of that going on, do we? Um, and so in that culture, dinner, eating dinner together, is really very much an intimate thing done with close friends and family. And that's the image here. You have a meal with God, and it's a privilege, and there's a closeness. People who had once been distant now brought close and reconciled. 1 Peter 3 says, Christ died for sins once for all to bring you to God. Romans 5 verse 10, we were God's enemies but are reconciled to him through the death of his son. Colossians 1 verse 19, God was pleased through Christ to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. At the cross, Jesus made a sacrifice for our sin, and the fruit of that is closeness to God, an intimate relationship with God. We've been reconciled. Secondly, then, uh, a substitute, getting ready to go on. Christ was crucified, suffering as our substitute. I'm going to read from 1 Peter 2 and verse 21, where it says, Christ suffered for you. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And he bore our bodies, sorry, he bore, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. A substitution has taken place. He suffered in our place the innocent for the guilty. Hebrews 2, verse 9, he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And so... We don't need to be punished for our sins because Jesus has taken the extreme, ultimate punishment, capital punishment, in our place. We don't need to have our evil cleansed from us by being beaten because he was beaten. And by his injuries, we're healed. Now, of course, the whole idea of punishment is a little bit tricky today. 
society changes. The Bible says that moral justice requires punishment. It does, and I don't know what that does to your your politics, but um, the Bible says that moral justice requires punishment. In Proverbs 11, verse 21, be sure of this, the wicked will not go unpunished. In speaking of the not only the people that he loved, but the particular family of David's sons that he loved. It says in Psalm 89, God says this, If David's sons forsake my law, I will punish their sin with the rod, their iniquity with flogging. And in Romans 6, in the New Testament, uh, it's made stated really clearly, the wages of sin are death. At the same time, there, so... In this substitution, Jesus is taking punishment that should have been given to others and taking it all himself. And then there's a substitution so that we don't have to be punished. But there's another thing that the Bible also says, and I don't know what you'll make of this, but it's there in Proverbs 20 and verse 30. Blows and wounds cleanse away evil, and beatings purge the inmost being. And uh, if I've read anything countercultural in the Bible recently, I think that's it right there. I better say it again, because it's a little bit hard to take on board, isn't it? Blows and wounds cleanse away evil, and beatings purge the inmost being. And so... Punishment is seen not only to be done on account of moral justice, but it's also understood that punishment gets rid of sin. It deals with sin. It stops the sin. It purges the inmost being. An image that might perhaps help make sense of that is, uh, imagine, if you will, someone who's been smoking all their life, and has lung cancer, and needs to undergo surgery. And uh, you know that actually sometimes when you have a medical condition, it's the surgery that causes you most, you know, the aftermath of the surgery that causes you most pain. I was uh, hearing a friend describe in the week um, someone that they know who's uh, just undergone surgery for cancer, and one of the blessings was that um, the surgeon had really small hands, so they had to do less violence to this friend's body for the surgeon to get his hands in to do the operation. You know, surgery can be very violent. And yet, every day, in this city, and many of you will have done it yourselves, people go and place themselves on the operating, on the table in the operating, well, they're probably knocked out by then. You know what I mean. You know, we, we submit ourselves to the surgeon's knife and allow ourselves to undergo an operation that is going to cause us a lot of pain following because we know it does us good. And imagine this person who knowingly did something, smoking, knew that it might well lead to them getting cancer, gets lung cancer. Maybe this will help. Jesus goes into the operating theatre and has the operation done for them takes the pain of the post-operation recovery, 
and all that goes along with it. And the person who is culpable, the person who's made mistakes, just, just gets the benefit without a knife going near them. Yeah? It's a bit like that. All these things are partial pictures because the full scope of what happened at the cross is so vast. So in summary, this thing about substitution, Jesus suffered in our place. He satisfied the requires that he satisfied the requirements of justice, but he now also shares the benefits with us. He turned away God's wrath, opened up a new relationship with God, and he marks us with his blood as God's people. Now, this process of substitution brings up another New Testament word, which is the word justification. And it's meant in a very special way in the New Testament. When we use the word justification in everyday life, it's usually the reason that I'm giving giving for doing something that you don't want me to do. So my justification is this, so shut up. That's not how it's used in the Bible. In the New Testament, it has a very specific meaning, and it means to be made righteous. To be justified uh, means to be made righteous. And that requires a little bit of explanation too, doesn't it? Because what do we mean by the word righteous? Let's be clear, this is what Jesus came to do. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or we might say, so that we might become righteous. Or we might be justified. Those are all saying the same thing. There's lots of debate today amongst theologians, about what the word righteousness means, and especially the phrase righteousness of God. And there are three different things that people claim, theologians will argue, are meant by justification. The first one is um, something that you will have maybe heard, the idea that that I'm justified means that it's just as if I'd never sinned. Yeah? Yeah? I'm treated as if I'd never sinned. For me to be justified, for me to be made righteous, means that even though I've done a shed load of stuff wrong, because of what Jesus did on the cross and the swap that took place, when I put my faith in Jesus, God now looks at me just as if I'd never sinned. He sees me and treats me as righteous in his sight. That's one Meaning that is put forward for what it is to be justified, to be made righteous. Another, which, uh, another one is actually God is really making me better and better and better and better. He really is. It's not just that, I, that he looks at me as if I'm good. He's really making me good. And in that sense, I am being made righteous. There's another one which is different again, which, and this you'd have to do a little bit of reading perhaps to get your heads around. It may not be so obvious, but there is an argument that to be justified simply means I'm accepted into the people of God. 
that the righteousness of God is all about him. It's not about us, that the righteousness of God is all about him, and for us to be made righteous means he extends his righteousness over us, and therefore we're embraced. All it means really is that we are accepted and drawn in. Now this is a really, this is a debate that you might want to get into, but let me give you a quick headline answer to it. You know what? All of those things are true. We don't have to pick between them, like, am I forgiven, or, or is God transforming me, or does he accept me? Because it's all true. Yes. We are accepted, we are forgiven, and he's transforming us from glory to glory into the image of his only son. Yeah? So this word is a big word. Justification, righteousness. All of those things are true. So there's even more. Suffering as our substitute. We've looked at him being a sacrifice for our sins. And here we go. Here's another thing. The price is paid. Christ crucified. The price is paid. Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished. And the Greek word that John uses in John chapter 19 and verse 30, tetelestai, is a word that was used in commerce. It was used when you'd finished paying an account. All paid, all done, account is closed, it's finished. And so in Jesus' cry, at the end of his life, it's finished, there's not only the fact of the matter that he was now dying and his days were ended, there is this, uh, this sense as well of him he's knowing that he's paid something, that what needed to be done has been done, that whatever accounts there are kept in heaven of sin and righteousness and all the rest of it, he's done it. The price is, whatever the price is, whatever it amounts to, whatever needed to be done, he's done it. And later on, the New Testament picks this up with the idea of redemption. Can we have the picture? If you click again, you'll get a picture of the kind of shop that's getting used more and more and more these days in recession. This is what redemption's all about. You run out of money, but you've got a little something that's worth something, so you take it to the pawnbrokers, you give it to them, they give you a, some, some of its value, not all of it, because if you never turn up again, they'll want to sell it on at a profit, so they give you a low value for it, and then uh, you can buy it back from them if you ever come into money again. And so all of those things kind of belong to someone. It's all quite tragic, really. And you see people's wedding rings and such like. And there's this sense of, well, people are in debt. And because of their debt, they're stuck. And even so, it's only a faint uh, shadow of how bad it could be in the ancient world. Because in the ancient world, this kind of pawn shop had another option, which was you didn't just sort of sell off your jewellery and your wedding ring, you sold yourself. When you run out of everything else and you were still in debt, actually you were expected to sell yourself and become a slave. And so pawn shops and slave markets were all bound up together. And so people understood that, wouldn't it be brilliant if I put my wedding ring, because I was in such debt, and this is the last valuable thing I had, I gave that to a pawnbroker, and then I needed, I don't know, 70 quid or whatever it is, uh, to get it back again in the future. And someone came along and said, do you know what, Steve? I'll give you the 70 quid. And I, oh, brilliant, I'll have that back. That's really kind of you. You've paid for me and redeemed 
my ring for me, okay? Even better, if I'd sold myself into slavery and someone comes along and says, you know, I can't afford the 50 quid you're worth. Um, or no. Well, I don't, I don't know how, how much is a person worth. I, it doesn't work that way, does it? But, but it, in some societies, slavery continues and prices are put on people's heads. And, and this is the imagery here. There's a price on, on my head for me to get set free from slavery. Whatever that price is, however much I'm worth, I can't afford it, I can't get myself out, but Christ pays the price and I'm set free. He doesn't... Huh. Yeah, it's good. It's really, really good. The New Testament talks about being set free from sin, that when we started to sin, that to do things wrong, to make wrong choices, we got stuck in that. We racked up a level of moral debt that we could never pay off, and we're stuck in it. We can't sort ourselves out. We can't stop sinning. We don't have the power. We don't know how to. We're not good enough to do that. We need someone else to come along and to pay the price for us, whatever that price is, to pay it, that we might be set free, and specifically set free from sin. Mark 10, verse 45, the Son of Man, that's Jesus clearly, came to give his life as a ransom for many. Ransom is that that redemption payment, like when someone's kidnapped and you've got to pay some money to get the person back. It's the same thing. He came as a ransom to be our redeemer. 1 Peter 1, verse 18, you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers with the precious blood of Christ. That's the price. That's the valuable thing that was given. The lifeblood of God himself. I don't know that you get anything more valuable than that, do you? I'm sure you don't. The lifeblood of God was the price paid. Now, whatever, whatever is owed by any one of us morally, whatever we've done, I'm sure that the outstanding moral debt cannot be bigger than that the lifeblood of God would pay it off. And that is what's happened. All the wasted and broken years are gone. Now, that's what redemption speaks of. All the stuff that we did, that we've accumulated, that was just rubbish and spoils us. The Old Testament talks, doesn't it, about God making up the years that the locusts have eaten. It's the same thing. It's what God does. And so we have all these words. Righteousness, reconciliation, redemption, and another R. The cross is also a revelation of God's love. This is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. It says in 1 John 3, 16. John 3, 16 is a good verses. And uh, 1 John 3, 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. He defines love. He reveals to us what the nature of love is, that you would give yourself for people that are not deserving, people that are nothing like as worthy as you are yourself, and you give everything for them. You know, we sung earlier of God's unfailing love. The cross proves it. 
There's no going back after the cross, is there? I mean, he's been nailed to a tree. I think that seems to me to goes a lot further than nailing your colours to the mast. Nail yourself being nailed up. There is no doubt about the love of God. And for us it provides reconciliation, righteousness, and redemption. The cross tells us some things about God as well. It tells us that God is amazing. Oh, I'm glad about that. God is amazing. Here's some ways in which he's amazing. The cross proves that God is both just and merciful, but that mercy triumphs. He's both just and merciful. That reference in James 2 states that mercy triumphs. Justice is not set aside, but dealt with. There has been a punishment, there has been a sacrifice, a price has been paid, justice is satisfied and in no way belittled. But the price was paid by God out of mercy and the payment that he makes wins the day. God's amazing because he suffers for us. Punishing himself so that we need not be punished. 2 Corinthians 5, again in verse 19, explains that in the cross of Christ, the triune God, that is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, can be seen to be punishing himself. even though he didn't deserve it. Jesus did this willingly. It tells us Galatians 1.4 and Ephesians 5.2 again tells us Jesus willingly went to the cross. There is a blood-stained lamb on heaven's throne. And he is our God. And he's stained with blood because he wanted to do us good. And pay the price so that we would be free. God's amazing. He did all of this by grace. That is to say, we weren't looking for this. I mean, there was, n- there was no one going around asking God to die for them until God did it. And then people said, thank you. God took the initiative The scriptures say that we love him because he first loved us. He took the initiative in coming to us. We're saved by grace, not by works, not by what we've done. You know, there are some people for whom this word grace really, really, really needs to sink in. There is an ongoing uh, lie, an ongoing mistaken idea that lodges in our brains from the earliest days and it's slow to come out even when the Holy Spirit's at work in us and we're reading the scriptures. The lie is that I can affect how much God loves me. It's a lie. There's a spiral that sometimes goes on in the life of uh, people, whether they're Christians or, or, or not, where 
you do something wrong and you think, oh, God doesn't like me so much. That's the lie. That moment right there is when you believe the lie. You do something wrong and you think, oh, God doesn't love me so much. And so you distance yourself from him. Not so minded to read the Bible. Maybe a little bit less likely to turn up to church because who wants to get near someone that doesn't like you anymore? And then you drift away a little bit. And you know what? The further you are away from God, more likely you're going to do something wrong again. You go, oh no, he really doesn't like me now, does he? And this spiral goes on and on. The power of that downward spiral is in that single little lie that you've made God love you less. What complete nonsense. There's a cross, right? He loves you. He loved you before you were born. He knew all about you. He knew everything you'd do. And he's chosen to love you. Don't buy the lie. So the problem is that our pride backs up the lie, doesn't it? Because our pride says, our pride wants to say that when I've done something good, that I'm more worthy of love and God loves me more. Excellent. No. Nonsense. That's what grace is about. See, grace cuts both ways. There's nothing we can do to make God love us any less. Right? There's nothing we can do to make, us, make him love us any more. He loves us with an infinite love anyway. It matters what we do. It does matter what we do. It does please him when we, when we do things right. And it does displease him when we do things wrong. But he's made us righteous in Christ. Accepted us, forgiven us. And he's working on us to change us. And he doesn't alter his love for us one iota. This thing I read from Psalm 89 about the sons of David. He says, look, when you do things wrong, I'm going to beat you and flog you. But later in the same verse, it says, but I won't take my love away from you. That, that is a constant. That is never altered that he loves us. So next time you do something wrong, do you know what? Take the opposite approach and let it remind you that God loves you anyway. And you know what will happen is you'll say, oh, brilliant, thank you, God, that I'm forgiven. And even in the moment of your failure, you'll come close to him. And you know what? When you do something really, really good, instead of going, hey, God should love me a bit more, thank God that he's given you breath. Because you wouldn't have achieved anything without that, would you? We live by grace. We don't earn salvation. We don't earn the cross. It's a gift. So God's amazing and salvation is amazing. I just want to read a load of scriptures here, um, which kind of get at the fact that, you know, all sin matters, but none is unforgivable. It all matters, but none of it's unforgivable because of God and his love for us. I am accepted in Christ. Let me put it this other way. You are accepted in Christ. You are righteous. You are a saint of God. You're Christ's friend and a child of Father God. 
You're united with the Lord and one with him in spirit. You're a member of Christ's body. You have got direct access to God through the Holy Spirit. And you can approach God with freedom and confidence. You're saved by God himself. You're his workmanship, saved by grace. You've been bought with a price. You belong to God, and the evil one can't touch you. You're set free from sin and free forever from condemnation. You can be confident, as Paul was, that the good work God has begun in you will be completed. It will be perfected. And you can find grace and mercy to help you in your time of need. All of that spilling out from the sacrifice, being our substitute, the price that was paid at the cross. So we're going to break bread together. And um, let's just have this last slide. And remember, this is about being brought near. The bread reminds us of Christ's body being broken. The, the wine reminds us of Christ's blood being shed. I think it would be good just for us to take a minute or two to be quiet. There's a lot to reflect on here, isn't there? We have the cross, we have the bread and the wine, and in just a minute we'll share it together. But for now, let's be quiet and thank God in our hearts for what he's done for us.